The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Lord, we are your people gathered here before you, thankful for the fact that you have saved us, thankful for the fact that you are committed to building us, and also conscious of the fact that we need that continuing gracious work in our lives. We are broken off in many ways, in need of correction and turning and refining, sanctifying. We are thankful for your word that you give us and for your spirit sent, Lord, to make the word real to us, to press it into us and to to make it clear and to cause it to run. And I ask you, Father, to now commission him to have your way in this room among us. Lord, there are There are many, a hundred different places that we're coming from and a hundred different things that are on our minds. Would you draw us to rest before your word and would you teach us? Spirit of God, would you conform our minds to the mind of Christ? Would you help us to view, particularly, Lord, to view the community of God, the people of God, as you do. To view it with compassion and with mercy, with tears of mourning at its falling down. Well, I don't have words to make that happen. None of us have power to cause to rise up in us this kind of of love and this kind of concern. So I, I put it at your feet and say, would you make it so? Would you grow in us concern for your downcast people? Particularly of a, of a certain sort. Downcast because of our sin. There are many things that, that cause suffering and heartache in this world, but we look at one in particular today and I pray grow in us mercy and love and, and compassion for the people of God and a longing for more. Make your word clear. Build your church onto the name of Jesus, this great King. Cause us to honor Him and to trust Him and follow Him. And we pray in His name. Amen. Could get the lights over there; that would be helpful. We turn our attention this morning to the book of Second Samuel, which, in some ways, is like a new beginning, but in other ways, isn't new at all. It, it is new in part because a few weeks ago, uh, three weeks back now, we finished First Samuel and sensed all of, of the the rising of tension, the building of momentum that comes to a pinnacle there at the end of that book. There's, there's a great climax with simultaneously a great victory won by David on behalf of the people of God over the Amalekites and a great catastrophic defeat suffered by Saul at the hand of the Philistines. It happens at the same time, and it's the climax of the book. And so in in some ways, this feels like a great break because we drop down and we'll start again very small and very low here in 2 Samuel. So it feels different. But it feels the same because it really is all the same story. As I pointed out before, First and, first and Second Samuel are really the same book. Originally, they were one book. It's all the same characters. And we are still focused on the theme of God's kingdom coming and God's king coming. So it's a great bit of continuity. And also, it's, a, it's quite a bit of different story. Trouble isn't over, though, when we come to this, this great turn. You, you know, Saul's dead at the end of the book feels like, ah, but the trouble's not over. David will face just as much difficulty in this book as before. 
I need to walk with God just as much as, as before. So we'll see many of the same themes continuing on. This morning, we note the theme of lament, the theme of mourning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G, mourning. The same place, incidentally, that First Samuel begins, on a note of sorrow with tears. So with that, let me begin reading. I'm going to read Second Samuel, all of chapter 1. And I'll pass back through it to be sure that we observe some of the details of of the two main parts of this chapter that are both connected by this idea of lament. And then I'll make a couple of observations from it. Beginning with 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 1. After the death of Saul, when David had returned from striking down the Amalekites, David remained two days in Ziklag, And on the third day, behold, a man came from Saul's camp with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. When he came to David, he fell to the ground and paid homage. David said to him, Where do you come from? And he said to him, I have escaped from the camp of Israel. And David said to him, How did it go? Tell me. And he answered, The people fled from the battle, and also many of the people have fallen and are dead. And Saul and his son Jonathan are also dead. Then David said to the young man who told him, How do you know that Saul and his son Jonathan are dead? And the young man who told him said, By chance I happened to be on Mount Gilboa, and there was Saul leaning on his spear. And behold, the chariots and the horsemen were close upon him. And when he looked behind him, he saw me and called to me. And I answered, Here I am. And he said to me, Who are you? I answered him, I am an Amalekite. And he said to me, Stand beside me and kill me, for anguish has seized me, and yet my life still lingers. So I stood beside him and killed him, because I was sure that he could not live after he had fallen. And I took the crown that was on his head and the armlet that was on his arm, and I have brought them here to my Lord. Then David took hold of his clothes and tore them, And so did all the men who were with him. And they mourned and wept and fasted until evening for Saul and for Jonathan his son and for the people of the Lord and for the house of Israel because they had fallen by the sword. David said to the young man who told him, Where do you come from? And he answered, I am the son of a sojourner, an Amalekite. David said to him, How is it you were not afraid to put out your hand to destroy the Lord's anointed? Then David called one of the young men and said, Go, execute him. And he struck him down so that he died. And David said to him, Your blood be on your head, for your own mouth has testified against you, saying, I have killed the Lord's anointed. And David lamented with this lamentation over Saul and Jonathan his son. And he said it should be taught to the people of Judah. Behold, it is written in the book of Joshua. He said, Your glory, O Israel, is slain on your high places. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath, publish it not in the streets of Ashkelon, lest the daughters of the Philistines rejoice, lest the daughters of the uncircumcised exult. You mountains of Gilboa, let there be no dew or rain upon you, nor fields of offerings, for there the shield of the mighty was defiled, the shield of Saul, not anointed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the fat of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan turned not back, and the sword of Saul returned not empty. Saul and Jonathan, beloved and lovely, in life and in death they were not divided. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. You daughters of Israel, weep over Saul, who clothed you luxuriously in scarlet, who put ornaments of gold on your apparel. How the mighty have fallen! in the midst of battle. Jonathan lies slain on your high places. I am distressed for you, my brother Jonathan. Very pleasant have you been to me. Your love to me was extraordinary. 
surpassing the love of women, how the mighty have fallen and the weapons of war perished. 1 Samuel chapter 1. The chapter begins with Saul dead, and we're back in Ziklag, David's home base in the land of the Philistines. They've returned there after striking down the Amalekites, it says. So this is the setting, and it reminds us of why it is that Saul's dead. He refused to obey the Lord in striking down the Amalekites. So there's, there's the setup here. Saul's dead because of his disobedience regarding the Amalekites. And the first section of this chapter is framed with David, on the other hand, killing Amalekites. We're reminded that he waged war against them to free the people. And then he kills this Amalekite who says he killed the Lord's anointed. So we have this, this contrast set up. And he finds out about it from this Amalekite messenger who's come to Ziklag on the third day. A small little point here that's worth noting. Because this is the third time that mention of the third day has come up in the last couple of chapters. We can't make too much of it because it's not the main point anywhere. But on the other hand, it's, it's coming up a couple of different times here. It was on the third day that David returned to Ziklag and found disaster. The city burned back at the end of chapter of uh, 1 Samuel, came back, found it burned, and comforted himself, strengthened himself in the Lord, and then met with the Lord, and the Lord sent him out as a, as a great Savior. And then they found an Egyptian who had been left in the desert for three days and three nights on the point of death, and David acts to revive him, and then he proves influential in leading them. And here it is, on the third day they find out that the king is dead. The old kingdom has passed away and the new kingdom is about to come. These are the kinds of things. We see them in other places throughout the Old Testament. The kinds of statements that set up without ever explicitly saying the Messiah is going to die and rise on the third day. It doesn't explicitly say that. But it sets up a preparation for us. Good things happen from bad on the third day. That's all that it does here, and then it moves on. On the third day, he came and told them, Saul's dead. And he asks him how he knows, and he says, I was there and I did it, which is a lie, which unfortunately backfires. We know it's a lie because the narrator is already in the previous chapter, already told us what actually happened. Saul's been wounded, and he asks his armor bearer to kill him, and the armor bearer, knowing that this is the Lord's anointed, greatly fears, it says in the text, and will not strike him down, so Saul kills himself. And he lay there all night. It wasn't until the next day that the Philistines came to strip the dead. So he lay there all night, plenty of time for a gold-digging Amalekite to come and find the gold crown and the gold armlet and see a golden opportunity. I know who I can ingratiate myself to, David. And he goes 80 miles over three days to go get himself a reward. He tells them this unlikely story of I just happened to be in the king's inner circle as an unknown foreigner with nobody else there. And David, as we see later, checks out his story asking him, now who are you again? I'm the son of a sojourner. Oh, so you are one who has dwelt in Israel and knows better than to raise your hand against the Lord's anointed. That's why he kills him for the crime of murdering the king. Blood be on your own head. You testified to it yourself. That's how David deals with Amalekites who strike against the name of the Lord. But in the middle, drawing our focus, that story of the Amalekite is interrupted and placed right in the middle to draw our focus, which is the connection point to the second half of the chapter, verses 11 and 12, the reaction to this news. David took hold of his clothes and tore them and so did the men who were there. And they wept and they mourned and they fasted for Saul, for Jonathan his son, for the people of the Lord, the army, and for all the house of Israel. Heartbroken. They break down in mourning. 
which is what then connects us to the second half, verse 17, where David lamented with a lamentation that he taught to the people of Judah to teach them to lament. So we have an immediate response in verses 11 and 12. And then in the second half, we have a thoughtful, pondered response that is calculated and propagated. So this is what we're supposed to get. This is how we are supposed to react. An immediate response might be a wrong one, but a thoughtful, contemplated, propagated one is what we're supposed to see and it's supposed to resonate with us. This poem here in 17 and following is given shape by the threefold repetition of the phrase, how the mighty have fallen. In 1925 and 27, he's talking about the mighty ones. Jonathan and Saul probably has particularly Jonathan in mind because of how he ends with Jonathan also. But he means Saul too, which is remarkable. He includes Saul in this. Actually mourns for him. This is the glory of Israel slain on the high places, the mountains of Geboa. He uses a unique word for glory there. Perhaps we could translate it as beauty or honor. Here's the honor, the beauty of Israel cut down. The pride of Israel, the sweet beauty of Israel, including Saul. If he could stop it, he would. Verse 20, the the gloating that will surely happen amongst all the Philistines, the uncircumcised, the non-believers. He's gripped by that. And And he wants this to be passed on to the people of Israel, the people of Judah, that they would lament and they would see these are the leaders, these are the crowns, the glory, the honor cut down and non-believers will gloat over this. What a sorrowful thing it is. This one who was the defender, the, the bow and the sword, the shield, no more, which leaves the people vulnerable, no longer adorned in beauty. Mourn over Saul, you daughters of Israel. Over Saul. And then he comes to Jonathan at the end, his sweet brother who loved him in covenant love. He's heartbroken over that. That one makes more sense to us. We see the union between David and Jonathan developed throughout 1 Samuel. Jonathan, who was a generation older than David, laying down his right to be the next in line to the throne. He's the crown prince. And he says, you instead will be king and I'll be your number two man. He's David's great champion and and he's dead also. The heartbreak. But both of them together, dead, leads to mourning. Unlike the Amalekite figures. both of them together should lead to great opportunity. See the contrast there? We need to explore that a little bit. I'm going to make two observations to help us unpack that and think about the two different reactions, how David reacts and wants us to react and how the Amalekite thinks that he should. So let me make two different points. Here's the first one touching on the mourning aspect. The downcast state of the people of God is a grievous thing. The downcast state of the people of God is a grievous thing. And it should make us grieve. The main event that drives the whole chapter is is the news of the military disaster. Everybody's dead. The army's destroyed. You'll recall also that the civilian population is displaced, chased out of their homes. There's refugees roaming all of the north of Israel. There's a, a great catastrophe, militarily speaking and societally. This is God's judgment on Saul, on his house, and on the people who wanted a king like one of the kings of the nations. We saw this pattern in the book of Judges. God predicted it. 
in 1 Samuel chapter 12, he talked about verse 14 and following in chapter 12. He said of the people that if they and their king will fear the Lord and obey his voice and don't rebel, then good will come from my hand. But if not, if they will turn away from the Lord, then his hand would be against them. As he said in the very last verse of chapter 12, if you do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. That's what's happened. God's hand rested on them in wonder anointing Saul and using him to bless and to deliver the people. And in rebellion, God's hand was pulled back, actually reached out again in judgment. That's what's happened. And obviously that sweeping away is what leads to the dominant response of grief. He mourns because they have fallen by the sword. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. How the mighty have fallen. That's, that's the, the connection that spontaneously arises that comes from further reflection. But why? What happens is obvious. But why? This is sin being judged. Shouldn't, shouldn't godly people be happy to see sin judged? Shouldn't godly people like David, be, who have suffered under this sin, be at least in some way relieved to see it wiped away? Certainly the Amalekite thinks that's the way it should be. That's why he makes up the story, to, to come and say, I'm going to bring good news. He's not expecting this response at all. Why the response of, Oh! The answer is in the lament that he lamented and taught us to lament. This literal laying down, this this casting down of all of these, not just the king and the prince, but the people, like so many sacrifices on the high places slain. It leads to lamenting Because, verse 19, it is the killing of the glory of Israel. And David, this is is not rocket science, but this is the whole point. It's the killing of the glory of Israel. And David loves Israel. That's why. He looks at the glory of Israel dead and he loves this people who bears the name of the Lord and he loves the name of the Lord and he is also ripped apart by the fact that the Lord's name is going to be trounced in the streets of the Philistines. These uncircumcised ones, which is Old Testament language for not people of God. These non-believers are going to walk all over the name of the Lord and the people of the Lord are going to be surrendered to vulnerable attack. They are kicked out of their homes. They are killed. They are crushed. They are chased across the, the river running for their lives. Oh! It's not complicated, but that's, that's the reason. That which I love has lost something incredibly valuable. That's why people grieve. That's why we all grieve about anything. And the reason the Amalekite doesn't get it is he assumes David cares about David. I know how people work. This is the chance for David's name to be lifted up, for David's kingdom to come, for David's will to be done. Naturally, that's what he will want. And so this will be great news to him. What? Totally unexpected. David has supreme affection for the Lord and for those who bear His name. And as he sees them left defenseless with their shield in the dust, a shield is supposed to be anointed with oil to defend against sword blows and against arrows. 
and the oil's rubbed off and it's covered with dust lying there on the ground because the one who bore it is lying there on the ground. And the sword that is supposed to cut through the enemies of God is there broken. And the bow, there aren't any arrows left. It's unstrung. Useless. Here are the daughters of Israel left without a head, without a husband. This is language of what a husband would do to clothe you luxuriously in scarlet and put ornaments of gold on your apparel. You are widowed. In many ways, literally widowed, but figuratively widowed. This is the, a, a man who loves the name of the Lord and loves those who bear the name of the Lord and sees them cast down, harassed, and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and profoundly in a flash is grieved by it. And then we don't know when, perhaps that night as he looks up at the stars and remembers the promise made to Abraham, so shall your offspring be. Oh God, but your offspring. We don't know when, but he puts it down, writing his tears. Even for Saul. Which makes no sense. I mean, you can sort of understand the rest of it, but this, that's the man who for 13 years has been hunting him down like a dog. Because he sees that, yes, that has been my experience with him, but this one was at one point a beautiful deliverer with the power of the Lord on him the leader and the defender of the people. This is a simple point, but it, I, I hope it is a clear point. The question to you, do you love like David loves or do you think like an Amalekite? Another way to put it, is the kingdom of the Lord and the people of the Lord and the values of the Lord and the agenda of the Lord first and foremost in your affections or, contrarily, your own kingdom and your own name and your own agenda and your own glory. That's, that's the question being raised here. Grief over the downcast nature of God's people and therefore God's name assumes that you care about God's people in God's name. So do you look at the people of God who bear the name of God? Do you look at the church? Do you look at it, I'll offer some, some options here. Do you look at it in, I'll say, anger? When you see it in sin, maybe sinning against you, do you look at it in, in frustration and anger and annoyance? When you look at it in its, in its sin and its, its failure, its its cast down nature you look at it then with some slightly sense of pleasure they got what was coming to them do you look at it at all do you think about this people and this name at all, or are you thinking about your own kingdom? Let me walk through those three options before I offer a fourth. I think that for some of us, I think some, some subset, I don't know how big of a subset, some subset of us that is a little more theologically particular and or has had negative interactions with other Christians, been affected by their sin, 
anger over their sin, indignation over their error, is right near the surface. Sometimes you don't let that out, but there is a great... hmm, a great feeling of, I have been wronged, or these people wrong us or others. Never mind that they're Christians that bear the name of Christ. There, there is a wrong there. There is an error in their practice. There is an error in their teaching. There is an error that has affected me negatively, and I am <clears throat> angry. Is that you? As you look at the people of God, you find that in your heart. Sometimes that leads into the second one. A bit of what I'll call jealous pleasure. They got what's coming to them. I have been a part of conversations, have overheard sometimes even think things like the following. Well, of course that church is overrun with sin problem X. That's God showing them that they're wrong. Thank goodness. Of course... Marriages are falling apart in that church over there. If, if they would understand properly how to disciple married couples, both those who are about to be married and those who are married, like we understand, then that wouldn't happen to them. There's a little bit of a... in that. It's, you see how that's cast, often cast in a... It's a bad thing that happens over there, but there's also a little bit of a pride. We're not not like that here. We know better. We teach better. Maybe there's jealous pleasure in you when you when you see a church that you disagree with or a ministry that you disagree with go through some sort of difficulty, some financial shortcoming that causes them to close their doors. You say, ah, good. The judgment of God is falling on them to remove them. I am not talking and I'm not advocating that we stop being discerning in any way whatsoever. What I'm trying to point out there is something that's very subtle and I'm not sure that I've been effective in pointing it out. But something that's, that's very subtle that sets us against others with a feeling that we are superior and we're almost happy at their failings and at their shortcomings, believing that they're, oh good, God has moved to shut them down, to limit them, to cut them out. Rather than mourning over any shortcoming or failing, we are delighted in it and thankful for it. you don't know what I'm talking about, thank goodness. But some of us do. I think, though, probably the third category, do you ever even think about God's downcast people at all? Do you consider the kingdom do you consider the big, the big picture? What, what God's name, what God's people, what God's agenda is and how it is going out there? Or, or, is it, or is it just a little focus on me, my kingdom, my agenda? And as long as things are going well here, great. Do you give consideration when... When you see a a person or a people, Christians, 
suffering, facing hardship, maybe experiencing the discipline of God. Do you think about that? Is your heart drawn to it? Are you in some way thinking, oh God, act, change? Or do you not want to be bothered? What David wants to communicate to the people of God is a concern for the people of God, an attention to the people of God, and then a, an affectionate concern for the people of God. To think of them with tears. To see them harassed and helpless. To see a tragedy happening. And to weep over it. I have to admit to you, brothers and sisters, I have to admit to you that as I, as I approach this chapter, there's, there's a, a bit of a disconnect with, between my heart and what I find here. I struggle to think about what, what, where does this come down in my world? I mean, I get David and, and the people and the king and all that, but where does this come down in my world? I work on that. I think about that. I, th- I think where it comes down in my world is looking at other Christians in this church or other churches, but... I think for me, it's other Christians in this church and seeing where is God striving with them? Where's God pushing them in, in a way that is that hurts for them? And do I find in myself an attitude of, yeah, good. Let him push and let them hurt. After all, it's because of their sin, and and often it is. It's because of their sin. Do I find in myself a Christian, another person who bears the name of the Lord, with whom God is striving and in some way has His hand upon them in a heavy way, and do I find... A, a withdrawing, a turning away, a, a walking apart from, let God deal with that. Or am I grieved over it? I'm, I want to be very careful. I am not saying that I want to condone the sin. I'm not saying that David condones Saul's sin. What I'm saying is that nonetheless, we are to care for these people. These ones who bear His name just like I do. We are to say, yes, God's hand is heavy upon you. Yes, there is some casting down. Yes, there is some discipline here. And that breaks my heart because I care about you and I care about why that is. Why is it that God's hand is heavy on this person? In some way, there's something that He's correcting. Sometimes I'm able to discern that. Sometimes I'm not. God always puts His hand on us to graciously, lovingly correct us, which is a, a marvelous, really good thing. Think about that. Every bit of God's discipline, every bit of God's hard conforming that comes to you, Christian, is because He in good, gracious love is trying to correct you. Men and women, to be grieved at Christians who are suffering, to see what they have lost and to see what God is trying to do to restore. It's, going to put, it's pushing us on towards the second point already. An affection. It's not, it's not complicated. But is it there in you? Are you grieved when you see Christians suffering? even when you can particularly identify they are suffering because of their sin. 
there's a second point I need to bring up. Which is shorter because it's it's only hinted at in the text. It's not it's not really what the text is teaching us directly. Directly he's teaching us to mourn when the people of God suffer loss. But here's the second point. God's casting down of his wayward people is also a glorious thing leading to our joy. So the first point is talking about how it's a grievous thing and we should mourn over it when we see God's hand on people such that they are cast down and are, are facing loss, are, are vulnerable. That should cause us to grieve in, in, in compassion, concern, and love for them. And the second point is, it's also a glorious thing. Which sounds like a contradiction. We need to think about it for a second. Because there's another reality that is going on here in the book that while David has this great sorrowful moment here, the fact of the matter is that this is the deliverance that everybody has been longing for for decades. This is the answer to Hannah's cry way back in the beginning of 1 Samuel when she asks the Lord prays that He would break the bow of the mighty, that He would cut off the wicked, that He would break into pieces the adversaries of the Lord and give strength to His King and exalt His anointed. Those are her words from her poem at the beginning of the book. This is the answer. This is a glorious thing. Wow, it's a grievous thing. Why is it a glorious thing? Because of what's being lift it up while this is being torn down. The one that we have being torn down is being replaced by one, David, who does faithfully hear the Lord and does faithfully kill the Amalekites and does defend the name of the Lord and is grieved over the people of God, isn't in it for himself like Saul was. That's a really, really good thing to have that king removed and this king lifted up. So praise God for the affliction. It's hinted at here with this good news coming on the third day, with this killing of the Amalekites. But really, it's more clear as we keep on reading. But you realize that this is how God always is dealing with His people in our hardship when He reaches out His hand against His people to afflict in our sin, it's a grievous thing. And we should grieve for the people of God who are suffering and come alongside to help. But we should also point out to them and in our own hearts, reserve a place for thank you. For thank you. For the wounds. Thank you for slaying these mighty ones to give us a mightier one. That's hard. But it's how God works. His work of renewing and reviving in an individual and among a people so very often is first a work of cutting down and plowing under. We should mourn the casting down. We should mourn the pain and the loss and the vulnerability. We should mourn the fact that in the short run, 
when Ichabod happens, like happened in 1 Samuel, and the glory of the Lord is slain on the hills, we should mourn the fact that God's name in the short run looks like dirt. That His people suffer. We should mourn that in the short run. But we should also keep the longer view and see that this is a clearing of of a way of something so as to plant something that will grow and become marvelous. In the life of the church and in your own personal life, Christian, there's a, a great sorrowful reality that we have to reckon with. We don't want the king. We don't. We, we are, are very fundamentally Amalekite. We want our own kingdoms and we want him to come along and put a stamp on it and approve it and lift it up. That, that's a reality. It's tragic, but it's real. And God in grace is plowing that under over and over and over again in your life. Because He wants to raise up a mightier one to cause the King, the King, to reign over you. Weep and mourn and grieve and rejoice at the same time. In in the same things. Be sorrowing but ever rejoicing in the same things. This is very difficult to deal with for ourselves. And I think my experience seems to indicate that it's so hard to do with other people that I shrink back from it. I encourage you. When you look around at other churches but particularly the people that you rub shoulders with the most, people in this congregation, and you see them even in their sin. You see them suffering, even if you are, you are certain that it is because of this particular sin. Draw near to that person and weep with those who are weeping. And also... Call that person. This is the part where where I shrink back because I find that sometimes people don't want to hear this part. Call that person to beyond the weeping to also say thank you. To give thanks in all circumstances. Because God's at work in you. He's weaning something away. He's plowing something under in you. That's, that's hard to say. Some people don't want to hear that. You can say that, though, if you have drawn near and loved. And you can, you can point out the second part along with it. Mourn over, mourn with. God's downcast people and call them to rejoice in what He is doing to bless them. To bless them. That's what's going on in your life. That's what's going on in the lives of the people around you. Let me pray. Lord, I don't know where you want to take this people, what you want to do with this people. I don't know all those specifics. I, I, I know nothing about the future. But I do sense, Lord, that we as a people, as a whole, need to grow in the sense of 
the compassionate mourning with thrust of this passage. So however you mean to do that, however you can do that, Lord, if, if we need that, would you grow us as a people? But Lord, would you put over the ones here, the ones who call this place home, would you put over the mourning and over the sorrow and the loss, would you put over it a joy that is real, not pasted on, but real. Because we recognize that even in the sorrow, and even in the sorrow that our, that our partners in the church here, our, our covenant partners are experiencing, that you are doing good. That you are about a work of renewal. Would you make that clear to us too? And would you cause rejoicing to rise in us and a willingness to lay ourselves in front of you and have our sin cut away? Bring correction on us, please. It is a good thing that you do not let your people experience the fullness of your blessing in their sin. That's a good thing. Correct us. Rebuke us. Train us in righteousness. I don't know what you want to do. I, I don't know how you will do it, but I pray that you would grow us, that you would make this people, this few hundred people that calls this place home, that you would make us a real body that loves the people of God and that loves the name of God is more concerned about that people and that kingdom than about our own. Make us real, please. Thank you for being a God who cares. For being a God who is concerned to build the church and not just to let us practice having church. So do that by your Spirit's power and for the glory of, of your great name now and into the ages. Build your church. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.